Thank you. That's amazing how um, music can lift us up and then calm us down, then lift us up and calm us down. It's a beautiful gift from God. We're very blessed to have it as a means to bring Him glory and worship Him in this place. Uh, I didn't, re- I, you know, two weeks out of the pulpit. It is good to be back. Um, though I will say that Rick, with the wind in his sails, and Kevin, with the reliability of Scripture, did such an outstanding job. I have to wonder if we should just make it a yearly tradition that the first two weeks in October, the first two Sundays, that Rick and Kevin just keep a good thing going. Should we take a vote? Well, we don't do that, but <laughs> it is good, and I appreciate and very blessed uh, being afforded the opportunity um, to go to Maine and officiate a holy covenant um, between my son and his new bride, Emily. And I'm sure they are greatly appreciative that I was able to go and officiate that so that they can be legally married from henceforth. We had a great time um, seeing, as Kevin prayed, there were just new things to see in God's creation. It's amazing. And even just meeting new people. Uh, but it's God's world. He's an amazing God. And we were very blessed with the sights and the sounds. Um, drove just a little under 3,000 miles. And it was good to be away. It was much needed. Um, but it's really good to be home as well. And to be with you. Well, as you know, if you've been here at least once in the last year or more, we are in the Gospel of Matthew. And we are in chapter 27. And we know that the message of Matthew is that Jesus is king. And from his birth to John the Baptist to all of the teachings of Jesus, it's repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I don't know that we've ever seen such an intense warfare as what we see in chapter 7 when Jesus goes to the cross. Because Jesus doesn't just go to the cross Man brings him the cross. And I know that the sovereignty of God, he puts himself there. But in the sinfulness of man, man puts him there. So we are responsible or mankind is responsible for that. But this is a very intense chapter because we see evil just kind of oozing out every chance it gets. For Jesus to be king and for Jesus to say the message is to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That means that all the substitutes or false kings have to make way for the king. And Jesus isn't just a king, but he is God the king. And so all the false gods or the things that people worship need to make way for the king. And we see this happening in chapter 27. And it's a tremendous battle in the heart of man. Because you almost wonder, well, how low Will man stoop? How much, how much leeway will he give the sin in his heart? We see this. We see this in Jesus's friends and we see this in Jesus's enemies. Because for the king to come, man has to lay aside the sin that he loves so much. We see Man clinging to his sin, not wanting to give it up for the king, saying no to the king. We saw it in Judas, believing the lies of sin, where he sold Jesus for something what he thought was better, silver, and that didn't deliver. He thought that could get him in a better place in his life, take care of his soul. 
we, we have this tendency to turn to sin to take care of our souls and comfort our souls and it doesn't deliver. And that drove Judas to be miserable and to seek suicide as a way to escape his misery. And sadly, sin lies to us and it did not offer him an escape because we only the only way to escape our guilt is not to alleviate our physical suffering. Because there's a spiritual world, the way we take care of our guilt is to get right with God, to make peace with God. So sin just kind of led him uh, to that place. And then we saw it also in Peter, Jesus's good friend and devout believer, devout disciple. Where he was given an opportunity to prove his loyalty and his faith in Christ. But he chose rather to deny that he ever even knew Christ to preserve his own life. He gave in to sin. And that caused a misery in his heart and he couldn't stand himself. It nearly killed him from the inside out. But rather than turning to a false escape, he turned to God. Then we saw sin alive and well, even in Pilate, who's a pagan, but he has a conscience and he knew the difference between right and wrong. And everything was telling him, this is an innocent man, have nothing to do with this. Get out of this or set him free or do something, but do not bloody your hands. And yet to save his own neck or perhaps just to save his plush life and his career, he just went along with it. And then we saw evil at work in the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders who have a delusion that they are in control and they're envious of Christ because of his influence over the people. And that's what they want. They want that kind of influence. And so they pull out all the stops at bringing him down. And yet they're in a little conundrum because they have to try to do it. Well, one of their idols is self-righteousness. They want to appear to the world that if there's anybody worthy of heaven, if there's anybody worthy of God, it's me because I do not break the law. And yet here we have them in their self-righteousness breaking the law against Christ. As if to say, I'm going to be self-righteous and I don't care how many lies I have to tell or how many people I have to step on or how many people I have to kill. If I have to kill Jesus, then I'm going to do it. To be self-righteous. To keep control. We're seeing evil in all these forms, you know, and I think that in there somewhere we are represented. Maybe it's with Judas. Maybe it's with Peter. Maybe it's with Pontius Pilate. Maybe it's with the Jewish leaders. But somewhere in there we are represented. And that's what evil does. Even to the best of us. Even to those that mean well. And then we find also in chapter 27 that sin has no boundaries. And it's not just that we find that we sin against each other. But what's happening here is that they are sinning against God. And, and I guess you could say and, and to some degree, we kind of deserve it. We have it coming to us because we add to the fuel. We add fuel to the fire, right? I mean, we bring our own vices to the table. We have our own forms of manipulation and things. But if anybody did not deserve to be sinned against and to have evil heaped upon him as he did, it would be Jesus. Because Matthew also makes it clear that he is innocent. Nobody could find any dirt on him, even as those that knew him the best. So they had to make things up. And so what we're seeing in this intense battle between good and evil is just 
wrong. It's just wrong what's happening to Jesus here. There's no good that can be found in this. The wrong of wrongs is being done against the king of kings. And you would think that if there is such a thing of God as a God and if he has any sense of justice and if this is so wrong, then something's got to be done about it. You just can't let these kind of things happen in the kingdom of the king. There's got to be justice somebody has to pay. And that's where Matthew's passage this morning brings us as we see evil out of control. In our passage, Jesus is on the cross. And he's been mocked. I'll read it in just a second. But just to bring us up to speed. Since I've been gone for so long. Right? He's been mocked. He's been falsely accused. He's been whipped. Brutally beaten. He's been laid flat on a wooden cross. His hands stretched out. Nailed through into the cross, his feet put together, nailed through into the cross. The cross set up erect, thumped into the ground. And there he is hanging in our passage. He's hanging there, nailed to the cross. His own body weight bearing down, burdening his core so that to even take a breath is a chore. To lift the diaphragm is a chore. So it's just a torturous, terrible way to die. Man has aimed his evil at Jesus, the Son of God, and hit him square. It's ruthless. It's violent. It's cold. But I think what you could say is that this is man's wrath against God. You will not be my king. I will not live by your rules. I will do what I want to do. And so man raises his voice against God. Which is ironic because all this time we've been reading about how Jesus didn't raise his voice. About how Jesus, when all this is going on, never said a word of protest to the point where Pilate's shocked like, you're, you're innocent. Why, why aren't you proclaiming your innocence? And yet he did not raise his voice. I mean, as far as we know in Scripture, even when he was receiving the beatings and carrying the cross and being mocked, there wasn't a word of protest. I'm sure he moaned and he groaned and he whimpered. He's, he's human, but he didn't protest. Or raise his voice. Or challenge or question this wrath of man. That changes in today's passage. There are many things happening in this passage. There are things I'm just going to have to let go. But what I want to focus in on is the significance of the cry that Jesus utters. This is the time when he does speak loudly. And cry out. And we find it in chapter 27 verses 45 through 56. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying. 
Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And so our passage starts with references to time, the hours, as the Jews kept their sense of time. Matthew and Mark say it was Jesus was nailed to the cross. You'll recall at 9 a.m., uh, the third hour, uh, you will remember that all the so-called trials that Jesus had were done just at the crack of dawn to make them legal by Jewish law. Couldn't, weren't supposed to be done in the dark, though they were. And they drug him before Pilate, and he was beaten in Pilate's quarters. This is all very early in the morning. And by 9 o'clock in the morning, he is on the cross. The third hour, and the sixth hour at noon, something spectacular happens, miraculous happens, and that is the sun goes out. It's the middle of the day. And the light goes out at noon. And so for three hours, three more hours, Jesus and the criminals with him are hanging on the cross in darkness. Our text brings us to three o'clock. And of course, by this time, he's been on the, ha- the cross for uh, several hours, six hours. And, you know, a lot of the excitement's gone. Some of the mocking has died down. And really, it's just a waiting game. I mean, that's what you do. Just waiting for these people to die. And it was at this time when things were quiet, subdued, that Jesus rustles himself up. He gathers himself up and he, he, he gains some kind of spurt of energy, if you will. And he lifts himself up because that's what you have to do. You have to lift yourself up on the spikes from the spikes at your feet to even take a breath. So you, you trade one pain for another and he lifts himself up and not just to get a little bit of air to take another breath to keep from dying. More than that, he wants to get a lot of air. He needs enough air, not just to utter a little something or whisper something, but he needs enough air to cry out something loudly. And so he comes to life, if you will. And he speaks very loudly out into the air, out into the crowds. He shouts. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not 
delusional. He's not just moaning in pain. His words are very, very specific. And the Gospels are written in Greek. And yet this word or this saying, this crying out was preserved in the original language, Aramaic. Why do they just keep it? I'm just thinking because it was unexpected and it was so powerful. They wanted to keep this memory as original as they could. This is how they remembered. He stood up and he and he screamed these words. This is what he said. And then Matthew translates it into Greek. And in essence, Jesus is saying, why? Why? You've abandoned me, God. And that's the question I want to spend our time on this morning. It's a question that we need to know. And that if we don't understand this question and understand the answer, we don't truly understand the cross. Jesus isn't losing it. He's not in so much pain that he's just talking nonsense. As a matter of fact, what he's actually doing doing is quoting Scripture as he dies on the cross. Word for word, Scripture. And in this case, he's quoting Psalm 22. We read it every Easter. He's quoting Psalm 22. Now, we've spent a lot of time in the Psalms, and we know a lot of the Psalms were written by David. And a lot of times David is describing specific events in his life and he's talking to God about them. And so like when the prophet Nathan comes to him and and confronts him about his sin with Bathsheba and then he just his heart is broken and he enters into a time of true repentance. Cleanse me, O God. And he's in tears and so forth. And the, the whole psalm, I think Psalm 51, it describes all that. So a lot of psalms are describing what David experienced in his life. This is a psalm of David. Psalm 22. And yet, as we read it, we realize that there are there's an uncanny uh, resemblance to what's happening in this psalm and what's happening to Christ. What we have already studied over the last several weeks. I mean, literally, it is unfolded in the past in this psalm. And so let me just pick a few verses out of Psalm 22. The first verse starts with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verse six, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who seek me, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. I mean, this is word for word what we've been reading in the Gospels. And it was written centuries before By the hand of David in this praise song. When did all this happen to David? This detailed description. I mean, we know that David often felt betrayed and 
he cried out to God, where are you, God? And as well as, you know, who hasn't? Who hasn't? That's a true believer. Who hasn't said, God, where are you in my life? I mean, it's like the sun went out in my life. But David had times like that. And David was mocked a few times and ridiculed and so forth. He had his hard times. But when in life did this happen, where there's the piercings and so forth? And the answer is it didn't. This is prophetic. But what David is doing, uh, Timothy Keller says, is that this is a description of an execution. It's a description of a, of a man. David's writing about a man that is facing his death. He's being judged and everybody's against him for whatever he's being accused of. And he's on his way to his death. So it's not just this physical pain, but it's, it's an emotional judgment of execution. But what we find is that, you know, if you read Scripture, the plan of God just oozes out everywhere. Christ oozes out everywhere. And we find Him here in Psalm 22. And it's not just an execution of anyone. It's the execution that we are reading about in Matthew. So Jesus is being judged. And it's not just a physical suffering. You think about Christ on the cross. Um, someone said today, I'm not sure if it was in the prayer time or it may have been one of the Psalms read during our worship. But uh, nature proclaims the glory of God. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, nature is saying something as well. And when the sun goes out that's and, and turns that part of the world dark. There's a message in that. Nature, the heavens are communicating to the earth. And what darkness means in Scripture is judgment. God's judgment. So in, just to give a specific example, in Amos chapter 8, verses 8 through 9. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile. And be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. Verse 9. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Now, what's happening in this context is this is God judging sinful man. Humanity has offended him. They have transgressed his ways and darkness comes or judgment comes in the cover of darkness. And so as Christ hangs on that cross, the word from nature, the word from heaven, the heavens is an execution is taking place. God is executing his wrath against offenders because the people stand in guilt. And we can't fully understand the cross unless we wrestle with this thing called guilt. Because what is happening on that cross is that the guilt of mankind is being dealt with right there. Now, we live in a time where outside of this church or outside of the church, you don't hear a lot about guilt. People don't want to talk about guilt. It's a negative thing. Uh, after World War II, well, 
due to the Enlightenment, where we decided that uh, if God did exist, he's up there. He doesn't need us. We don't need him. And then that morphed into just outright atheism where God is dead. He doesn't exist anyway. We know now through science we don't need God or his word to tell us how things work. We can figure out on, on our own. But after World War II, the psychiatrists and so forth concluded as people, humanity came to them with all their misery and their problems, concluded that what your problem is is that you got all this guilt you're living with. And what you need to do is not live by that guilt. But they didn't send people to make peace with God, to be forgiven for the guilt. What they what they advised was uh, it's a false guilt. And the reason you have this guilt is because you're trying to live by some kind of rules and standards that you can't live by. And so you're miserable. So you got to get rid of the rules and the standards and set yourself free. Now, we hear the same thing on our talk shows today. Turn the TV on ad nauseum about how, listen, don't let people control your life and tell you how to live. They have no business telling you what's right and wrong. You come up with your own right and wrong. You come up with how you're going to live and you will be liberated. And you won't have to carry this ball and chain of guilt around with you, offering the same kind of advice. It's, un, it's, it's unbearable. People make you feel guilty because they push their standards on you. And you need to set, your self, set yourself free from these standards and decide for yourself. Then you will be free and you'll get rid of that miserable, guilty feeling in your heart. Is that really the advice we need? Is that what liberates us from the guilt? Is it really helpful to our well-being. And if so, at what cost? Another way to put it would be, should I worry more about a person that has gotten to a place in their lives where they no longer feel bad about anything as opposed to a person that still has a sense of obligation? Because that's where our culture is trying to bring us. Where we make up our own rules. If you don't like the rules, change them and just live by your own. Now, you know that doesn't work, right? But that's what we're being told. So if I can get to a point, let's just say I, I apply what's being taught. I want to try to get to a point in my life where I can do what I want to do and not feel bad about it. So I'm working hard to try to get to a point where I can have countless affairs and not feel sad or feel like I've betrayed anyone, not feel like I just brought my part of destruction into a relationship with the world. I want to get to a point where I can embezzle money from the church and get the things I need to get to make myself happy and not feel bad about the problem is feeling bad, right? That's the problem. I got to get out from this bad feeling. Can we really apply that kind of advice? Is that going to set me free from feeling bad about the way I live or the things that I do? You know, how we answer that question is very, very important. And it reveals what we believe and what we live for. I would venture to say that by trying to solve our guilt in any other way than what the Bible teaches, we're not... 
giving ourselves life and liberation, we're choking the life out of ourselves. Because guilt has a place. And I know there's false guilt and that's a terrible thing. That's from the enemy, but there's real guilt. And that's what the scripture identifies. Because if I want to make up my own rules and what I've concluded in my life is that I am the final authority of all things. And I answer to no one. I don't answer to you and I don't answer to any so-called God. Well, that's a dangerous place for humanity to be, isn't it? Especially if there's. If I'm not the only one thinking along those lines, but if you start thinking along those lines as well, because we're going to really clash sooner or later. But if I'm the standard, then there's nothing more important than me. There's nothing more important than me getting my way. There's nothing more important in this world than the way I feel. And everybody needs to just rally around me and bend their ways so that I can feel good about myself. So I put myself at the highest place. You're thinking, you got to think about all that deep stuff just in this passage in Matthew. Yeah, this is the guilt of humanity. This is what we have to wrestle with. What do you do with the feelings of misery? Where do you take them? What is your method for liberating yourself from your shortcomings or transgressions? Christ is on that cross for a reason and he asks this question for a reason. I would argue that my guilt makes me more alive because what my guilt does, when I feel bad, when I've really done something, I'm talking about true guilt. Because what it does is it communicates to me, Paul, there's something bigger than you out there. There are things in place, rules and boundaries set in place that are bigger than you. They're more important than you are. They're more powerful than you are. And you either fit in those or you pay the price. It reminds me that goodness exists, that justice exists, that there is a right way to get out from my own misery, which I create for myself. And then you add to that and help create it for me. Because we all have a sinful nature. Try as we may not. The way I free myself from this is by submitting to the king that Matthew has been telling us has come. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life. I think it. Piper says that we God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God literally created us to find the most pleasure in life by adoring him and worshiping him. And the more we believe that, then the more our lives will conform to doing everything in a way that soaks up God, loves God, adores God, worships God when we work and when we pray. And that's hope. It's hope that there is someone out there more important than I am, smarter than I am, and more righteous than I am. And that's the suffering servant on the cross. And he deserves to be worshipped. What he doesn't deserve is to be sinned against. 
He deserves to be worshipped, loved, and adored for the holy God is, that He is. And anything less is criminal. And God's greatest command to love the Lord God with all your heart and soul and to love your neighbor as yourself is being defiled, broken. And so what do we have? We have the dark cloud of judgment coming. In the cover of night. God's wrath. We saw man's wrath against God. And now we are seeing God's wrath. I laid the boundaries. I set them. And you broke them. There needs to be an execution. And we have before us in this passage. An execution. A man in agony. Judgment has fallen from on high as Jesus is forsaken. And he says, why? Interesting thing for Jesus to talk about or to preserve his, to, to use his final ounce of strength. Because he doesn't say, why do my hands hurt so bad? Why do I have to suffer like this? Why my head hurts, it's bleeding, or my feet, or why have you, my friends, abandoned me and left me? The relational loss, the physical suffering. Now, that's not, as bad as that is, that's not what he's suffering from at this moment. He's suffering from the wrath of God that has come upon him. And the wrath of God is separation. That darkness, the light is gone. Where Jesus turns to God. And we, we read about him earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane being at the mouth of the furnace where God takes him to the mouth of the furnace of judgment and now he is in it. And he shrieks. It causes him to shriek on the cross. That's what he's crying about. All the other things pale in comparison there's no greater agony. And we think about the closeness. What is he experiencing on the cross? Well, God is perfect love. And to be in this incredible relationship with perfect holiness and love, well, I'm sure that's a good feeling. It's a great place to be. That's all Jesus has ever known. And if you think about the closest relationship here on this earth, a marriage is that People have been married, say, 50, 60, 70, I don't know, maybe 80 years, maybe even more. I didn't look it up. And, and just a close-knit relationship, and you lose that person, you're broken. There's loss. There's sadness. I mean, it's, it's terrible to think about these things. That's just after decades. The triune God has been in perfect harmony and union for eternity. There's never been a time when they have not. And there's this, this closeness and intimacy that we long for in this life. The Gospel um, of John in, in the first chapter puts it like this. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. Uh, the NIV, to put it a little uh, more clearly, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son 
who is himself God as, and is in closest relationship with the Father. That's pretty intimate language, right? In the bosom of the Father? I mean, like, that's, that's our way of making things intimate. So if we, we take our love, cherished little, a little infant, we, we carry that infant close to us in our bosom. Um, so when we do hugs, you know, to express love and care, we bring people into our chest. You know, what's the saying now? Bring it in. Come on, bring it in. Well, in, in uh, conservative Christianity, we have side hugs. To avoid bringing it in. To avoid the intimacy. Because, you know, I don't want you bringing it in. I don't know you that well. So the point is there. So you have in this relationship, um, it, it's just pure. It's just a constant giving to one another. And Christ turns to that. And not, and not for a hundred years. And not for a thousand years, but for eternity past. There's never been a time when they withdrew their affection and favor to each other. Their souls have been hugging and clinging to each other, if you will, forever. And now Jesus shrieks because that's not there. Another word for it is hell. Hell is the absence of the presence of God. It's, the, it's when you find the very thing I needed in life, I can't have. And all along we learn in Romans that man rejects God and rejects his advances and chooses sin and chooses to worship self. And so God says, okay, if you don't want me, then you don't get me. And that's hell. There was a pastor uh, by the name of Robert Murray Machine. Um, he didn't live very long. He was the kind of pastor that just poured himself into ministry relentlessly and it literally killed him because he never stopped. I think he, he may have made it to his 30s. Anyway, there was times in his ministry where he felt what you might call the dark night of the soul where um, the, the physical or emotional, the felt presence of God isn't there. If you ever experienced that, I have. The felt presence of God isn't there and you're having your devotions and you're doing everything that you thought you're supposed to do and... You haven't changed, but the felt presence of God isn't there. And you're like, what in the world is going on? Anyway, he describes in his writings great times of loss and loneliness because he loved God and he, he longed for these times. And he, he was so grateful for the closeness and the intimacy as he ministered to people. But there came a time when it was like God wasn't there. And he described it like this. This is so sharp. He said, Has you, have you ever walked up to a chasm? And taken a rock and dropped it in. And then you're waiting. You're wondering how deep it is. Because you can't see it's too dark in there. And you're waiting for it to hit. And you drop it in your head. That's how he described the chasm. The darkness of his soul. It's like... God was so far away. I never heard it hit. That's the wrath of God. And that's what our sin does. Our sin separates us from God that far where you never hear it hit again. The cloud. The judgment. How great 
the separation. I'll just throw this out there because it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Because God's grace is common, meaning that God is gracious to all, even unbelievers. It rains on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? So everybody experiences the warmth of God. So it's really kind of hard to imagine a, a time or a place or an existence where you are totally cut off from God. There was a movie called Gravity. As Sandra Bullock and um, George Clooney. And they get lost in space. And I'm, I'm hearing about this movie and I think, that's going to be the most boring movie. How can you depict what it would really be like to just float out in nothingness? They did it. The cinematography and so forth. I don't know what it's rated. Just so, you know, don't send your kids home to watch. I, I can't remember. I, I hope it's PG. Nothing better or worse. Anyway, because I'm indicting myself as I speak. But uh, they they did it like you are feeling. So first, anyway, that the, the pod get their pod gets hit by a space debris and it gets disconnected from the spaceship. And that's just the two of them at first. But they have each other and then something else and they can commute. Oh, and then something else happens and then they're split up. And, you know, the cord that keeps you, you know, there's no gravity there, and the cord that keeps you grounded, that gets cut. So they're floating at space, but first they have each other in their communication. They can talk to each other. And then even that ends. And man, you are like, you really feel the angst of total darkness and loneliness. I mean, there is nothing and they are not grounded. You just are kind of. You have no control. And it, it helps us imagine what it would be like. I know we can't imagine the wrath that Christ experienced it, but I can tell you this. You will not experience it if you put your faith in Jesus Christ because He took it so that we do not have to. He is feeling that pain. On this cross. And it's a substitutionary death. It's his life for ours. Because he's not just man enough. But he's God enough to step in and say. I will take the price. The punishment. I'll take your fierce wrath. For those. That acknowledge me as the king that I have come. To represent. And the king that I truly am. It's incredible what we're reading about here. What do we do with our guilt? What do we do with this man that has given his life to be cut off from the preciousness and the union that he has in the Godhead? His cry means my joy. His sacrifice means my salvation. The incredible thing as we wind down and close is that Christ doesn't just take our punishment. That's the substitutionary theology that we've talked much about. But then there's also the imputation. He gives us. When you, when you repent of your sins and believe in Christ as King and as Savior, He gives us as a gift we didn't deserve His righteousness. So now what we're talking about is this 
this close-knit relationship in the bosom of the Father that Christ rightly has and gained, He takes that. It's, it's got His scent, if you will, the preciousness and the favor of God on it. And He takes it and He puts it on us so that now we can experience the favor and the pleasures of God that we don't deserve. Because of Christ. He is an incredible God. And he speaks to us in his word. What does the cry say to you this morning? It's an invitation for us to deal with our guilt in a right way. It can be escaped forever. And that's by bowing our knee, repenting from clinging to our sin, to the false kings and the false idols and the things that we turn to and saying, I choose you, God. And I want to be satisfied and filled with you. Do you hear the cry coming from this little kingdom outpost this morning? You know, Scripture goes on to say the party's already started. The door of salvation is open. Make your peace with God and join the saints in anticipating the horn that is blown when the groom comes back to redeem his bride, to bring us back up into the heavens, the untainted kingdom of God where we will be forever gloriously dazzled in His presence. May God bless the preaching of His Word.